Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the first chapter of Murder in the Mystery Suite, the first book retreat mystery by Ellery Adams. It's read by local actor Ariel Lynn. Murder in the Mystery Suite was published by Berkeley Prime Crime in January of 2014. If you'd like to help support this podcast, listen for details in the closing of this episode on how to become a patron and get some fun perks. There were books everywhere. Hundreds of books. Thousands of books. There were books of every size, shape, and color. They lined the walls from floor to ceiling, standing straight and rigid as soldiers on the polished mahogany shelves. The gilt lettering on their worn spines glinting in the soft light, the scent of supple leather and aging paper filling the air. To Jane Stewart, there was no sweeter perfume on earth. Of all the libraries in Storyton Hall, this was her favorite. Unlike the other libraries, which were open to the hotel's paying guests, this was the personal reading room of her great-uncle Aloysius and her great-aunt Octavia. Are you ready, Sinclair? Jane mounted the rolling book ladder and looked back over her shoulder. A small, portly man with a cloud of white hair and ruddy cheeks wrung his hands in agitation. Oh, Miss Jane, I wish you wouldn't ask me to do this. It doesn't seem prudent. Jane shrugged. You heard what Gavin said at our last staff meeting. The greenhouse is in despair. The orchard needs pruning. The hedge maze is overgrown. The folly is hidden in brambles, and the roof above the staff quarters is rotting away. I have to come up with funds somehow. Lots of funds. What I need, Sinclair is inspiration. She held out her arms as if she would embrace every book in the room. What better place to find it than here? Can't you just shut your eyes, reach out your hand, and choose a volume from the closest shelf? Sinclair stuck a finger under his collar, loosening his bow tie. Unlike Storyton's other staff members, he didn't wear the hotel's royal blue and gold livery. As the resort's head librarian, He distinguished himself by dressing in tweed suits every day of the year. The only spot of color that appeared on his person came in the form of a striped, spotted, floral, or checkered bow tie. Today's was canary yellow with prim little brown dots. Jane shook her head at the older gentleman she'd known since childhood. You know that doesn't work, Sinclair. I have to lose all sense of where I am in the room. The books must choose me, not me, it. She smiled down at him. Miss Pimpernel tells me that the rails have recently been oiled, so you should be able to push me around in circles with ease. In squares, you mean? Sinclair sighed in defeat. Very well, Miss Jane. Kindly hold on. Grinning like a little girl, Jane gripped the sides of the ladder and closed her eyes. Sinclair pushed on the ladder, hesitantly at first, until Jane encouraged him to go faster, faster. Are you quite muddled yet? 
he asked after a minute or so. Jane descended by two rungs, but didn't open her eyes. I think I'm still in the 12th century American author section. If I'm right, we need to keep going, Sinclair grunted. It's getting harder and harder to confuse you, Miss Jane. You know where every book in this library is shelved. Just a few more spins around the room. Please? The ladder began to move again. This time, however, Sinclair stopped and started without warning and changed direction more than once. Eventually, he succeeded in disorienting her. Excellent! Jane exclaimed and reached out her right hand. Her fingertips touched cloth and leather. They traced the embossed letters, marching up and down the spines for a few brief seconds before traveling to the next book. Inspire me, she whispered. But nothing spoke to her, so she shifted to the left side of the ladder, stretching her arm overhead until her hand brushed against a book that was smaller and shorter than its neighbors. I believe you have something to tell me, she said, and pulled it from the shelf. Sinclair craned his neck, as if he might be able to read the title from his vantage point on the ground. Which one chose you, Miss Jane? A British mystery, she said, frowning. But I don't see how. At that moment, two boys burst into the room, infusing the air with screams, scuffles, and shouts. The first, who had transformed himself into a knight, using a stainless steel salad bowl as a helm and a gray t-shirt covered with silver duct tape as armor, brandished a wooden yardstick. The second boy, who was identical to the first in every way, except for his costume, wore a green raincoat. He had the hood pulled up and tied under his chin, and he carried two hand rakes. His lips were closed around a New Year's Eve party favor, and every time he exhaled, his multicolored paper tongue would uncurl with a shrill squeak. Boys, Jane called out to no effect. Her sons dashed around the chairs and side tables, nearly overturning the coffee table with his collection of paperweights and framed family photos. Sinclair tried to get between the knight and the dragon. St. George, he said in a voice that rang with authority, though it was no more than a whisper. Might I suggest that you conquer this terrifying serpent outdoors? Things are likely to get broken in the fierce struggle between man and beast. The first boy bowed gallantly and pointed his sword at Jane. Fair maid, I've come to rescue you from your tower. Jane giggled. Thank you, Sir Fitz, but I'm quite happy up here. Refusing to be upstaged by his twin brother, the other boy growled and circled around a leather chair and ottoman, a writing desk, and a globe on a stand in order to position himself directly under the ladder. If you don't give me all of your gold, then I'll eat you! He snarled and held out his hand rakes. Doing her best to appear frightened, Jane clutched at her chest. Please, oh fearsome and powerful dragon, I have no gold. In fact, my castle is falling apart around me. I was just wishing for a fairy godmother to float down and... There aren't any fairies in this story, the dragon interrupted crossly. Fairies are for girls. Yeah, the knight echoed indignantly. Jane knew she had offended her six-year-old sons, but before she could make amends, her eye fell on the ruler in Fitz's hands 
and an idea struck her. Fitz, hem, you are my heroes, she cried, hurrying down the ladder. The boys exchanged befuddled glances. We are? They spoke in unison, as they so often did. But I'm supposed to be a monster, Ham objected. Jane touched his cheek. And you've both been so convincing that you can go straight to the kitchen and tell Miss Hubbard I've given my permission for you both have an extra piece of chocolate-dipped shortbread at tea this afternoon. Their gray eyes grew round with delight, but Fitz whispered something in Hem's ear. Pushing back his salad bowl, Helm, he gave his mother a mournful look. Miss Hubbard won't believe us. She'll tell us that story about the boy who cried wolf again. I'll write a note, Jane said. The boys exchanged high fives as she scribbled a few lines on an index card. Shall I tuck this under one of your scales, Mr. Dragon? She shoved the note into the pocket of Hem's raincoat. Now, run along. Sinclair and I have a party to plan. Sinclair waited for the boys to leave before sitting himself at his desk chair. He uncapped a fountain pen and held it over a clean notepad. A party, Miss Jane? Jane bounced into the chair across from him and rubbed her palm over the cover of a small book in her hands. This is Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. Are we having a Halloween party then? Sinclair asked. With pharaohs and mummies and such? He furrowed his shaggy brows. Did the boys get up and influence your decision? Not just a costume party. Think bigger. Jane hugged the book to her chest with one hand and gestured theatrically with the other. An entire week of murder and mayhem. We'll have a fancy dress ball and award prizes to those who most closely emulate their favorite fictional detective. Just think, she continued, warming to her idea. We'll have Hercule Perrault, Sherlock Holmes, Sam Spade, Lord Peter Wemsey, Nick and Nora Charles, Brother Cadfell, Miss Marple, and so on. We'll have readings and skits and teas and banquets. We'll have mystery scavenger hunts and trivia games. Imagine it, Sinclair. He grimaced. I'm trying, Miss Jane, but it sounds like an awful lot of hubbub and work. And for what purpose? Money, Jane said simply. Storyton Hall will be bursting at the seams with paying guests. They'll have the time of their lives and will go home and tell all of their friends how wonderful it was to stay at the nation's only resort, catering specifically to readers. We need to let the world know that while we're a place of peace and tranquility, we also offer excitement and adventure. Sinclair fidgeted with his bow tie again. Miss Jane... Forgive me for saying so, but I believe our guests are interested in three things. Comfort, quiet, and good food. I'm not certain they're interested in adventure. Our readers aren't sedentary, Jane argued. I've seen them playing croquet and lawn tennis. I met them on the hiking and horseback riding trails. I've watched them row across the lake in our little skiffs and walk into Storyton Village. Why wouldn't they enjoy a weekend filled with mystery, glamour, and entertainment? The carriage clock on Sinclair's desk chimed three times. 
Perhaps you should mention the proposal to your great aunt and uncle over tea. Jane nodded in agreement. Brilliant idea. Aunt Octavia is most malleable when she has a plate piled high with scones and lemon cakes. Thank you, Sinclair. She stood up, walked around the desk, and kissed him lightly on the cheek. He touched the spot where his skin had turned a rosy shade of pink. You're welcome, Miss Jane, though I don't think I was of much help. You're a librarian, she said on her way out. To me, that makes you a bigger hero than St. George, Sir William Wallace, and all the knights of the round table put together. I love my job, Jane heard Sinclair say before she closed the door. Jane turned in the opposite direction of the main elevator and headed for the staircase at the other end of a long corridor carpeted in a lush crimson. She was accustomed to traveling a different route than the paying guest of Storyton Hall. Like the rest of the staff, Jane moved noiselessly through a maze of narrow passageways, underground tunnels, dim stairways, attic accesses, and hidden doors in order to be as unobtrusive as possible. Storyton had fifty bedrooms, eleven of which were on the main floor, and even though Jane's great-aunt and uncle were in their late seventies, they preferred to remain in their third-story suite of apartments, which included their private library and cozy sitting room, where her aunt liked to spend her evenings reading. Trotting down a flight of stairs, Jane paused to straighten her skirt before entering the main hallway. Along the wood-paneled halls hung gilt-framed mirrors, brass sconces, and valuable oil paintings in ornate frames. Massive oak doors stood open, inviting guests to while away the hours reading in the Jane Austen parlor, the Ian Fleming lounge, the Isaac Denson Safari room, the Daphne du Maurier morning room, and so on. There was also a Beatrix Potter playroom for children, but that was located on the basement level as most of the guests preferred not to hear the shrieks and squeals of children as they were trying to lose themselves in a riveting story. Jane greeted every guest with a hello and smile, though her mind was focused on other things. She made a mental checklist as she walked. The door handles needed polishing. A light bulb's gone out by the entrance to Shakespeare's theater. Eliza needs to stop putting goldenrod in the flower vases. There's pollen on all the tables and half the guests are sneezing. She almost reached the sun porch when the tiny speakers mounted along the crown molding in the main hallway began to play a recording of bells chiming. Jane glanced at her watch. It was exactly three o'clock. Oh, it's tea time! A woman examining an attractive still life of cherry blossom exclaimed. Taking the book from a man sitting in one of the dozens of winged chairs lining the hall, she gestured for him to get to his feet. Come on, Bernard, I want to be the first one in today. Jane knew there was slim chance of that happening. Guests began congregating at the door of the Agatha Christie tea room at half past two. Bobbing her head at the eager pair, she walked past the chattering men, women, and children heading to tea, and arrived at the back terrace to find her great aunt and uncle seated at a round table with the twins. The table was covered with a snowy white cloth a vase stuffed with pink peonies, and her aunt's Wedgwood tea set. "'There you are, dear!' Aunt Octavia lifted one of her massive arms and waved regally. Octavia was a very large, very formidable woman. 
she adored food and loathed exercise. As a result, she'd steadily grown in circumference over the decades and showed no predisposition toward changing her habits, much to her doctor's consternation. As Jane drew closer, she noticed a rotund tuxedo cat nestled on Aunt Octavia's expansive lap. The feline, who often took tea with the family, had arrived at Storyton Hall during a thunderstorm the previous spring. The twins had discovered the tiny, shivering, half-starved kitten in a corner of the garage, and assuming it was female because of its long eyelashes and stunning gold eyes, named the pathetic creature Miss Muffet. The local veterinarian later informed them that not only was Miss Muffet a male, but judging from the size of his paws, was likely to grow into a very large cat. By this time, everyone had gotten used to calling the cat Miss Muffet. The twins insisted the name be altered to preserve the cat's dignity. And so, Miss Muffet became Muffet Cat. Muffet Cat had the run of the resort. He came and went as he pleased, darting through doorways between the feet of startled guests and indulgent staff members. During the day, he vacillated between hunting, napping on the sun porch, and begging for treats. But he spent every night with Aunt Octavia. For half a year, the twins complained that Muffet Cat was a traitor. They claimed they'd rescued him from certain death and he owed them his allegiance. But Muffet Cat merely tolerated them. Aunt Octavia was the center of his feline universe. You can't command a cat's affections, Aunt Octavia had explained to the boys. Muffet Cat prefers the gentler sex. He's a very intelligent animal and knows that he only has to gaze up at a lady with those big yellow eyes, and she feels compelled to feed him a tasty morsel or two. It was true. Muffet Cat had so perfected this plaintive look that he'd gone from an emaciated kitten to a portly cat within a matter of months. As Jane took a seat at the table, Muffet Cat opened his eyes into slits, licked a dot of cream from his whiskers, and went back to sleep. Hello, everyone, Jane said as she put her napkin on her lap. This was the only time during the day in which she would sit in view of the guests. Very few people noticed the Stewart family gathering for tea, being far too busy filling their own plates with sandwiches, scones, cookies, and cakes inside the main house. Fitz plucked her sleeve. Mom, can I have another lemon cake? He glanced at his brother. Him too? Fitzgerald Stewart, Aunt Octavia said in a low growl. You've already had enough for six boys. So has Hemingway. Let your mother pour herself some tea before you start demanding seconds. And you should say may I, not can I. Nodding solemnly, Fitz sat up straight in his chair and cleared his throat. Doing his best to sound like an English aristocrat, he said, Madam, may we please have another cake? This time, the question was directed at Aunt Octavia. Before she could answer, Hem piped up in a cockney accent, Please, Mum, we're ever so hungry. Aunt Octavia burst out laughing and passed the platter of sweets. <laughs> Incorrigible, she said, and put a wrinkled hand over Jane's. Are you going to the village after tea? Mabel called to say that my new dress is ready, and I can't wait to see it. 
bright fuchsia with sequins and brown leopard spots. <gasps> Can you imagine? Jane could. Her great aunt wore house dresses, fashioned from the most exotic prints and the boldest colors available. She ordered bolts of cloth from an assortment of catalogues and had Mabel Wimberley, a talented seamstress who lived in Storyton Village, sew the fabric into a garment she could slip over her head. Each dress had to come complete with several pockets as Aunt Octavia walked with the aid of a rhinestone-studded cane and liked to load her pockets with gum, hard candy, pens, a notepad, bookmarks, a nail file, treats for Muffet Cat, and other miscellanea. Today, she wore a black and lime zebra-striped dress and a black sun hat decorated with ostrich feathers. In marked contrast to Aunt Octavia's flamboyant attire, Uncle Aloysius dressed like the country gentleman he was. His slacks and shirts were perfectly pressed, and he always had a handkerchief peeking from the pocket of his suit. The only deviation from this conservative ensemble was his hat. Aloysius wore his fishing hat, complete with hooks, baits, and flies all day long. He even wore it to church, and Aunt Octavia was forever reminding him to remove it before the service got underway. Some of the staff whispered that he wore the hat to bed as well, but Jane didn't believe it. After all, several of the hooks looked rather sharp. What sandwiches did Miss Hubbard make today? She asked her great uncle. He patted his flat stomach. Uncle Aloysius was as tall and slender as his wife was squat and round. He was all points and angle to her curves and rolls. Despite their physical dissimilarities and the passage of multiple decades, the two were still very much in love. Jane's great uncle liked to tell people that he was on a 55-year honeymoon. My darling wife will tell you that the egg salad and chive is the best, he said. I started with the brie, watercress, and walnut. He handed Jane the plate of sandwiches and a pair of silver tongs. That was lovely, but not as good as the fig and goat cheese. In that case, I'll have one of each. Jane helped herself to the diminutive sandwiches and a raisin scone. Her gaze alighted on the jar of preserves near Aunt Octavia's elbow. Is that Miss Hubbard's blackberry jam? Yes, and it's magnificent. But don't go looking for the Devonshire cream. Muffet Cat and I ate every last dollop. Her great aunt sat back in her chair, stroked Moffat Cat's glossy fur, and studied Jane. You've got a spark about you, my girl. Care to enlighten us as to why you have a skip in your step and a twinkle in your eye? Jane told her great aunt and uncle about her murder and mayhem week idea. Uncle Aloysius leaned forward and listened without interruption, nodding from time to time. Instantly bored by the topic, Fitz and Hem scooted back their chairs and resumed their knight and dragon personas by skirmishing a few feet from the table until Aunt Octavia shooed them off. Go paint some seashells green, she told him. You can't be a decent dragon without scales. We have an entire bucket of shells in the craft closet. What about me? Fitz asked. What else do I need to be a knight? Aunt Octavia examined him closely. Hmm, a proper knight needs a horse, 
Get a mop and paint a pair of eyes on the handle. Without another word, the twins sprinted for the basement stairs. Jane saw their sandy heads disappear and grinned. Her aunt had encouraged her to play similar games when she was a child, and it gave her a great deal of satisfaction to see her sons following in her footsteps. Imagination is more important than knowledge, was Aunt Octavia's favorite quote, and she repeated it often. She said it again now, and then waved for Jane to continue. Throughout the interruption, Uncle Aloysius hadn't taken his eyes off Jane. When she'd finished outlining her plan, he rubbed the white whiskers on his chin and gazed out across the wide lawn. I like your idea, my dear. I like it very much. We can charge our guests a special weekly rate, and by special, I mean higher. We'd have to ask a pretty penny for the additional events because I expect we'll need to hire extra help. But do you think it will work? I do indeed. It's quite splendid, he smiled. In fact, it could be the start of a new tradition. Mystery buffs in October, Western readers in July, fantasy fans for May Day, a celebration of romance novels for Valentine's, Aunt Octavia finished with a sweep of her arm. Uncle Aloysius grabbed hold of his wife's hand and planted a kiss on her palm. It's Valentine's Day all year long with you, my love. Watching her great aunt and uncle exchange tender looks, Jane felt a familiar stab of pain. It was during moments like this that she missed her husband most. She'd been a widow for six years and had never been able to think of William Elliot without a pang of sorrow and agony. While her great uncle and aunt exchanged whispered endearments, Jane wondered if ten years would be enough time to completely heal the hole in her heart left by her husband's passing. Jane, are you gathering wool? Aunt Octavia asked, shaking off her melancholy. Jane reached for the teapot and poured herself a nice cup of Earl Grey. I'm afraid I was. Sorry. No time for drifting off, Uncle Aloysius said. There's much to be done to prepare for this murder and mayhem week of yours. And I might say... He paused to collect himself, and Jane knew that he was about to pay her a compliment. Her uncle was always very deliberate when it came to words of praise or criticism. Your dedication to Storyton Hall does the steward name proud. I couldn't have asked for a more devoted heir. Jane thanked him, drank some of her tea, and went into the manor house through the kitchen. She tarried for a moment to tell the staff how delicious the tea service was, and then walked down the former servant's passage to her small, cozy office. Sitting behind her desk, Jane flexed her fingers over the computer keyboard and began to type a list of possible events, meals, and decorating ideas for the murder and mayhem week. Satisfied that Storyton Hall's future guests would have a wide range of activities and dining choices during the mystery week, she set about composing a newsletter announcing the dates and room rates. She made the special events appear even more enticing by inserting colorful stock photos of bubbling champagne glasses, people laughing, and couples dancing at a costume ball. She also included the book covers of popular mystery novels from the past century, as well as tantalizing photographs of Storyton's most mouth-watering dinner and dessert buffets. They'll come in droves, 
she said to herself, absurdly pleased by the end result of the newsletter. Uncle Aloysius is right. If this event is a resounding success, we can add more and more themed events over the course of the year. Then we'll be able to fix this old pile of stones until it's just like it was when crazy Walter Edgerton Stewart had it dismantled brick by brick and shipped across the Atlantic. We'll restore the folly and the hedge maze and the orchards. Her eyes grew glassy and she gazed off into the middle distance. It'll be as he dreamed it would be. An English estate hidden away in the wilds of the Virginia mountains. An oasis for book lovers. Of reader's paradise amid the pines. She reread the newsletter once more, searching for typos or grammatical errors and finding none, save the document. She then opened a new email message and typed newsletter recipients in the address line. It gave her a little thrill to know that thousands of people would soon read about Storyton Hall's first annual Murder and Mayhem Week. After composing a short email, Jane hit send, releasing her invitation into the world. Within seconds, former guests, future guests, and her newspaper and magazine contacts would catch a glimpse of what promised to be an unforgettable seven days. Tomorrow, she'd order print brochures to be mailed to the people on her contact list who preferred a more old-fashioned form of communication. I'll have contacted thousands of people by the end of the week, Jane thought happily. Thousands of potential guests. Thousands of lovely readers. Closing the open windows on her screen, Jane found herself staring at one of the book covers she'd used for the newsletter. It was Agatha Christie's The Body in the Library. And this version, from 1960, featured the silhouette of a woman standing in front of shelves of colorful books. Her hands were raised in an effort to fend off an attacker, but the assailant's hands were almost at her throat. The woman's demise was clearly imminent. Yes, I'm sure they're lovely people. Each and every one, Jane murmured firmly. We'll have no scenes bearing any resemblance to this cover. After all, it is a work of fiction. This reading of Murder in the Mystery Suite was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Hamm. You can learn more about this book and the author on her website, elleryadamsmysteries.com. If you'd like to help us be able to continue to bring you more mystery fun, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash kingsriverlife. Even $1 a month can make a difference. And a shout out to our new patron, Aaron Crowley. Thanks so much for your support. We also have some cool merchandise available on Redbubble, perfect for your holiday shopping. Check the show notes for the link and for the links to our websites and social media. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter for bonus content. And if you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it as this helps make us easier to find for others. Until next time, this is your announcer wishing you a life full of mystery.